Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is October 11th, Wednesday. Uh, you know, as usual, we will put out this disclaimer here that, especially this week, that we're record- we generally record this a day before, and so th- if things have changed, then, you know, that's why they've changed. But we had a whole episode planned, but uh, obviously the events of the weekend in Gaza have preempted a lot of that. And what we wanted to say at the outset of the podcast is that we're going to have a guest next week and we're going to discuss a lot of this in depth. But right now, what we think we can do is that, you know, we don't want to ignore the issue. And so I don't know, Tammy, like uh, what Tammy's here too as well. Um, Tammy, what's (laughs) your, uh, what's your, you know, how did you sort of, you know, take in what has been happening in the world? Like this feels like one of those transformative yeah. moments in world politics that people are going to reference for, you know, decades and decades to go. So, yeah, what, what was your, like, how, how did you sort of experience the rest of the, you know, in the same way that the rest of us did, which was kind of sitting around? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's been a really crazy week because we had news of the Afghanistan earthquake as well, where I think some 2,000 people died. And that's almost been completely <laughs> obscured because of of the Gaza surprise attack right. to southern Israel. And, you know, obviously I'm not an area expert at all, but I've just been reading as much as I can. I mean, I think something that, you know, stands out pretty forcefully, but that's a little bit tricky in this situation is, of course, the media bias in favor of the state of Israel. And, you know, that's not a surprise to anyone listening to this podcast. But I think in this particular instance, it's 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 tricky because... There's also a lot to say about, you know, what the what Hamas did in Israel. And and so you sort of want to, you know, and if you had like a more balanced media system, you would be able to digest the news and have a critical eye on what Hamas is doing in Israel without feeling like you're somehow betraying, you know, the Palestinian cause. But it's this setup because it's so already biased and so um, ahistorical that it's, it's sort of hard to, I think, especially position yourself as a progressive person who has anti-colonial sympathies, right? To right. be able to approach this, you know, in, in a sort of right and, and clear-headed way. And um, and so I, I'm very frustrated reading the news kind of by everybody, you know, <laughs> like both progressive and sort of left-wing coverage, but certainly by, you know, the Times and sort of just mainstream coverage. Yeah, the Times uh, did this thing this morning that I, you know, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want to dump on some guy who's like typing things into the update desk, you know, because that's sure. a you're talking about the live job. covered. Yeah, but there's you know the the famous quote that is, I think, going to be once again reverberating through the ages that where the defense minister of Israel is speaking explicitly that. Uh, the Palestinians in Gaza are animals and will be treated accordingly, right? The Times just put the first part of the quote, which is that we're going to cut off all electricity and water and didn't put in the second part of the quote, which came right after, you know? And like, that's the type of thing, look, Mm. again, not to dump Mm -hmm. on that specific person because I don't think that's just like when people are like, oh, that specific person had some sort of like, there's a whole editor network there, right? Like there's reasons why they might make that decision, which is like, we're going to have a whole bigger thing on this specific part of the quote. Right. But like what I've been noticed is that we're in such a low trust environment in terms of the media period that when events like this happen, especially when it comes to, 
you know, Israel-Palestine issues Mm -hmm. that nobody really trusts what the media is saying unless it's just saying what they think, right? right? Yeah. You're not actually seeking new information. Right. And like, I think that cynics would say that that was always true, you know, but I don't think that that is actually an accurate depiction of things. I think there was a period of time when there was a critical mass of people who would trust mainstream media, who would trust like, you know, Walter Cronkite. And you can say Walter Cronkite was bad. Sure. You know, but like that is irrelevant to the point that's being made, which is that there was some trust of it. I think a lot of this was fine when it was print and people didn't have images. But since Vietnam, for example, right, we have had sort of arresting images coming out all the time. And that uh, with social media, obviously, we have much more, right? And that people, what they generally do now is that they take whatever sort of compendium of video that they intake, they classify it in their brains. And then they they see that as more of a reality than what is going to be presented or the spin that's going to be presented by the mainstream media. And uh, they pick their mainstream media outlets by what they agree with, right? Like whatever fits that sort of video driven narrative in their heads. And I think this is true of many, many people. I don't think this is like a extremely online thing at all, right? Like almost everyone at least is on Facebook. Uh, people believe video much more. That's why video of like police killings, for example, is the only way to spur actual action against it is because the video is the only thing that matters. And in this instance, you know, like, uh, the, that video that is going to come out that people are going to watch children dead. You know, I watched a lot of it this morning, right? Like, uh, right. Like bombings, everything like that is extremely powerful. And that what it leads to is just sort of this chaotic massive emotion in people's head. Yeah. The job of the media is generally to disentangle that, right. And provide some sort of straight line through it. That's what it ideally should do. But people have completely lost any faith that in the media's ability to do that without sort of extremely obvious bias that's going into it. And uh, that's bad. You know, it's bad that 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 there's so little trust in what's going to come out. But I don't blame the people who don't have trust. You know, like I understand it. I myself don't really have trust at all in what media narratives come out because I work in the industry. I understand how the thing works. And you think those are really produced by media companies and working journalists as opposed to just through the the kind of, I guess, like fishbowl effects of social media? Because I, you know, I think like obviously coming out of that era that Chomsky was talking about, you know, we've had proliferations of different sorts of media. But to me, that that meta narrative production that seems to be really like a social media thing even more. And I'm, um, yeah, I'm curious, like what you think about the images people are taking in there versus the, you know, sort of 10 second or one minute videos they're watching on like the Times homepage. Right. Well, like, uh, for example, Donald Trump Jr. tweeted this weekend, I've seen much more footage of this conflict than I ever saw of Ukraine. I wonder why that is. Hmm. Now that's an absurd statement. And he basically said the New York Times has not covered Ukraine, which is also an absurd statement. Like they sent their <laughs> yeah. Lindsay Dario there to do daily video updates, right? That's their best photographer to basically, I don't know, it seemed like at some point she was really risking her life intensely to produce this type of stuff. And of course they did it, you know, and everyone sort of corrected Donald Trump Jr., I actually think the way that Donald Trump Jr. is 
sort of experiencing this is very similar to how most people experience stuff, which is that the timeline for this stuff is so short, yeah. you know, that it comes in such a massive flood that will always feel disproportionate to the thing before. And that rather than trying to create some sort of moral understanding of what's happening through the flood of stuff that's coming towards you, which is almost impossible because it's so much at once, right? It's mm -hmm. the images are so emotionally triggering that people sort of take a step back and then they criticize the media part of it, yeah. right? Like that's the impulse. And I just find it to be increasingly beside the point, like who fucking cares, you know, like, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I was thinking about, um, you know, like Susan Sontag on photography and that essay, like regarding the pain of others, she talks about like the anesthetizing effect of, you know, war coverage, right. And all that. And, um, it's interesting with Israel and Gaza because, I think because the United States is obviously has so such strong feelings about this conflict and has so many personal attachments through, you know, like Jewish con connections and also obviously a lot of Palestinian solidarity work being done here that um, that is like a little bit less true, but it also reminds you that her critique sort of is specific to each like conflict that erupts, you know, like, right. in, in you, like early on in the Ukraine invasion, like, we were very attached to those images. They didn't feel, they felt original and powerful. And that's kind of what we feel right now, but then give it a few days and that's over again. And and I just wonder, um, I mean, I think the this particular attack, because it's so unprecedented by every analyst's, um, you know, remarks that, that I've heard so far, um, I think seeing the killings in Israel is quite new to people, you know, and I don't know what that is going to mean for the shaping of um, the political perceptions of Netanyahu, of, you know, the the sort of rejiggering of power in that region, because when, you know, and again, I think we'll get into this with a guest, but, you know, it's just so dramatic given that we were just seeing all of those mass protests in Israel, right, around the judiciary right. and um, whatever the quote unquote democratic um, backsliding there. Um, and now it's replaced by this new set of images that makes Israel seem kind of unified. It's a little bit of this kind of post 9-11 effect that we saw here where all critique can kind of fly out the window. How did you feel like the general American news media handled this over the weekend? Like, did they do a good job? I think they did not do a great job in the sense of, I mean, again, this is sort of like obvious, but contextualizing history and I think the um, situation of the isolation and occupation of the, the Gaza Strip. I think at the same time, I there was like the reporter part of you that empathizes with this thing of, well, there is an attack and you kind of cover the attack and the attack at the beginning is on Israeli civilians. And so what do you do with that? You know, like you need to report that out. Um, but no, I mean, I think you can open the front pages of most publications and see that this is a very sort of myopic way of covering an incredibly complicated and longstanding conflict and acting as though this one attack is like the beginning of some like kind of isolated incident as opposed to like the buildup of something over many decades is obviously like a very poor way of, of covering things. And I think can, um, you know, I understand your, your feeling of like, yeah, just this lost trust and what can we do? But I don't know. I still sort of want to cling to hope that our, <laughs> our, our biggest and most stable news organizations can introduce like the perspectives we need to be educated and informed. And, and so on that count, I, I think I was disappointed and I was angry. 
Yeah. I know this is kind of a woolly conversation, but we'll get more yeah. clarity, I think, <laughs> when we have an area expert on. Okay. Um, yeah. I think we should, uh, we had one thing that we wanted to talk about here quite quickly, and I think we should, which is yeah. that, you know, over the last week, uh, LaFonza Butler, who is a person with a very interesting past, we didn't mention it a little bit last week, mm-hmm. was, uh, is now the, my senator, right, from the state of yeah. California, appointed by <laughs> Gavin Newsom. And uh, I'm fascinated by LaFonza Butler because I find that she encapsulates many of the sort of trends or ideas within mainstream democratic politics, right? Uh, And that in that way, she almost seems outdated, but she also is proof that she is not outdated because she's like (laughs) my senator, you know? That's hilarious. I sometimes think that the vanguard of where we're at in terms of racial conversation amongst like even the, you know, let's say liberal Californians. Yeah is like five, three years behind what people like me hope it is and say it is. <laughs> so what, yeah, well, what what do you think is going on here? I mean, are you saying basically that, no, I, yeah, actually just explain it because I'm not okay. sure I, I know what you mean. Okay, so LaFonza Butler uh, started out in labor, right? She worked for SEIU. Yeah. Um, and then from there, she flipped over to the other side. And right. as many people know, she worked for Airbnb. She was a lobbyist for Airbnb. She worked for Uber when Mm -hmm. Uber was doing its campaign to sort of, you know, the sort of anti-labor campaign against its drivers here in California. And uh, since then, she's worked, she's the CEO of Emily's List, which is a big time Democratic funder for uh, pro-choice candidates, right? Right. Pro-choice candidates. And that um, she is a cog in the mainstream big fundraising, big money, democratic machine. Yes, absolutely. And she is also somebody that nobody knew existed until she suddenly became senator of California. (laughs) And so, um, I don't know, like, I wanted to talk to you about her specifically, because I find it so interesting, the path that she took, right? And it's certainly something that you would be interested. Like, oh, like, what did you think when you when you heard about this? Well, I also am curious what like you the three years thing, the the better version that you expected. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously, the thing that that stuck out when she was appointed was that she was drawn from across the country. She hasn't lived in Cali in a minute, you know, and um, She's also basically like the slotted in black candidate that is now being opposed to Barbara Lee, who we've discussed on the show before in the upcoming Feinstein race. Um, The labor part of her is very interesting. She talks about how she was raised by a home health care worker and and that sort of inspired her to, you know, succeed and get into labor stuff. And she, I think think it was the largest California labor union at the time, the right. one of the SEIU locals that she was the president of for a number of years. And so I think she's very well known to people in Cali labor, but that flipping of a labor leader into gig economy territory, she's certainly not the first to do it, right. you know, and, and that's always this sort of like, I think under this rubric of the future of labor since the emergence of the new gig economy, that has always been the slip point where union bureaucrats go in when they want a lobbying job. Like I can name a few other people who have gone this way. And so that is a, in a way a very predictable kind of 20, late 20th century profile of somebody. Um, 
I think it's interesting also to think about Kamala Harris's husband being an Uber guy and, you know, LaFonza Butler having run, helped run Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. So they're, they're kind of all in the mix of this sort of like neoliberal democratic machine politics of California, which on its face to the rest of the country is quite progressive. But actually, when you look at the nuts and bolts of it, like has so many sort of of these capitalist contradictions. Um, I had been doing some reporting, which maybe I'll finish up in the future on California, like big California labor unions and who they were going to pick in the in the Senate race. And, um, you know, obviously, Barbara Lee is the most progressive compared to Schiff and Porter. Um, and, and so different unions, I guess, starting over the spring have been doing these sorts of convenings and town halls to kind of interview these candidates. So it's going to be really interesting to see which way they go now on Butler. Is she going to be kind of like the favored face of labor, despite the fact that she had taken this right. Uber Airbnb turn? Um, because they're just going to sort of like, you know, be realist about it and be like, she's the winning candidate. Or are they just going to stick with now? It seems like Schiff and Porter are probably out at far in the lead from from Lee um, with one of those, you know, and, and sort of just because they are kind of, have kind of been around more. Um, yeah. What it sort of means to be, I think, a labor candidate is, is going to be now one of the questions of the Feinstein replacement race. Well, what is a, what is you said that this is quite common where people say see an out to the lobbying side. What's the main motivation? I mean, is it just money? Like, I can imagine that if you're, you know, it like this, I will say this, that LaFonza Butler is very impressive, right? Um, Definitely. And that yeah. uh, I imagine that I have never met her, but having seen her speak now and like there is a impressiveness that one has to be at to have that much success in these types of highly competitive, we can call them neoliberal political organizations, or if you met this person, you'd absolutely be very, very impressed, you know, but is it like, Hey, I'm, I'm awesome. And I'm pulling in 60 grand a year working for SEIU or whatever. Right. <laughs> and that, um, like I could make 400 grand in six months doing this for Uber or whatever they're going to pay me. Right. Like, I mean, like the numbers are going to be incredibly different. Like what, what's the main motivation to, to flip over, right? When you yeah. spent so much of your time on one side. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I think uh, I won't name him, but I'm thinking of another labor leader who kind of falls into this category. And I think like he very much when he did it, he really believed that it was inevitable and that he could get on the inside of it and switch it around and make it more friendly to labor. And that there were sorts of, there were like little fixes he could make, you know, in the kind of this world of like the platform economy that would be good for workers. And, and so I think like there's probably a little of that. And then, yeah, just like the money and um, the fact that a lot of people were doing it. I mean, that's the kind of like, I guess the um, it's its own sort of revolving door thing that you see. How big of a red flag do you think it should be? Because like LaFonza <laughs> Butler, right? Like I think there's a very cynical way to think about her that I actually think we somewhat expressed the last time we talked about her in the last episode. But now I think about it, I thought about it a bit and I think it was unfair, right? Like, uh, yes, she is talked about in terms of identity politics in this very sort of... Oh, that's Mm-hmm. Like, well, because like, Newsom oh, was like, I'm like, going to bring yeah. in a black candidate, a black a bla- Yeah, and right? she's like, yeah. I'm the first black queer woman to be a senator in the United States Senate and that there is a way in which she has put forth that sort of screams of a type of identity politics that people on the left are allergic to at this point. Mm -hmm. Maybe just me. 
but you know, like some people on the left, but at the same time, right? Like, I don't think that that means that she herself is bad. She's literally just being described that way by Gavin Newsom, right? Like it's not like, and and by the press, right? Like (laughs) it's not like she has sort of come out and only talked about her identity, right? Like, and so um, my question is just like, look, this is all set up to be like, oh, this like, you know, once labor, once left sellout (laughs) is now the senator and she controls all the fundraising through Emily's list. And, you know, Gavin is just sort of doing this so that once he runs for president, all the people, all the fundraisers, he'll have a good in with the fundraisers. Like, eh, it's like all this like sort of narrative that's out there. It all seems kind of speculative, unfair, but like how, how much should we like, does, is this disqualifying for you at least to sort of switch over to on her end? Because you said that (laughs) some people do it in good faith, right? Yeah, or at least what they perceive to be good faith. I mean, I think it's especially pointed in California because California is the home of the ABC test of AB5. Like if if people haven't been following, California is basically, I mean, it's the lead on so many different policy issues, but for with regards to the classification of platform gig workers, California is the only state that kind of matters in setting the trends. Right. And so, and that's why there was like that huge hubbubaloo over um, this California state Supreme Court decision that was then going to be codified into law. And and LaFonza Butler was kind of like in the mix with that. And so I think like if it were in another state, it would be less dramatic. Okay. <laughs> but to be doing that work in California that's setting the scene for all of the rest of the country's classification of gig workers is like kind of bad. And, you know, and right, so right. And that's we like should... the issue like in a lot of the California labor left. We should also say that like it's not like she went and took a job at on the inside as a director of comms or strategy or something like that for a company like Uber, she explicitly was lobbying for them against in it for an anti-labor bill. Right. Like, so like that is a little bit different, I think. It seems different. So, so that to me is, is going to be interesting for like, whether that's disqualifying in, in California specific sort of labor context, you know? Um, I mean, at the same time, like, is she going to, if she becomes senator, is she, like, permanently, is she going to basically have the same views that a Schiff or a Porter would? Probably. Like, there's really not going to be that much of a difference, right? Like, they'll all be pro-labor Between senators. Between those three, yeah. Yeah, yeah there, that's, like, Barbara Lee is probably much farther left and, like, will kind of more principled on some of this stuff. But I don't think it's going to make, it would make that much of a difference, like, in the day-to-day of, of labor. Um but yeah, I, 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 it is a fascinating appointment. I mean, I do you feel like as a Californian, the fact that she's coming in from Maryland to like no, I don't resume care. her? I don't do you care, care about, about stuff no, like that? No, I don't yeah, care about that. Like, I, yeah. I think it's funny. Yeah. It is like, funny. Yeah. It's you like have a, to laugh. It's like one of those things where it's okay to make a lot of jokes about it, you know, but taking it way too seriously is like a little bit strange to me because Mm -hmm. I don't know, like, I don't care that she's from Maryland. She seems to own a home here in California, (laughs) right? Uh, Her appointment is obviously politically motivated, but I'm not going to get super mad about that, right? So for example, if he had appointed somebody whose politics perfectly matched mine and they lived in Maryland, would I be that mad about it? You know, would I say no? You know, obviously right, not. Right. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like I would be like, who yeah. cares? You know, yeah. Maryland is just part of, you know, like, I don't know, like, like 
Maryland's just part of California. Like we know the country. Like she like, was there for a job, whatever, whatever. Right, right. Like yeah. she went there. She's a displaced Californian. She's part of the mm-hmm. California diaspora, or whatever you want to say. You know, like uh, many of us have to leave the state to go work lobbying jobs in, <laughs> in Washington, in the Washington D.C. area. The sacrifice like, <laughs> of the lobbyist. Yeah, exactly. Um. They're still Californians, <laughs> but um, no, that doesn't really bother me. I wanted to ask you one thing though about this, which is just that, like, all right, a narrative has emerged. I think about her specifically that is very common i just want to know if whether you think this narrative is generally true which is that like labor becomes a place or community organizing like these sort of jobs that are uh you know basically organizer jobs in some sort of way that for a very type of ambitious person that it is a stepping stone to get the skills and the notoriety connections that they need Mm -hmm. to ultimately just amass power right and that the People are not interested in labor generally, but they understand that the pathways to becoming a politician is through these avenues because you mm-hmm. consolidate political power. The other example I would say, and you know, the fact that both are black, I think is not lost on me at all, is Barack Obama, right? Like sort of somebody who be, is a community organizer. That's how he's always described yeah. before, like when he was running for Senate in Illinois, right? Like he was always like community organizer, Barack Obama, right? And that there's a quick ascendancy, not a quick ascendancy, but that this is the path of power, right? Mm -hmm. You start out in labor, for Lafonso Butler specific, you start out in labor, you cross over, you amass money, influence, (laughs) right? And then you're running a big democratic machine organization. And then suddenly you're tapped to be like the, the, the king, the queen, queen, right? That you're the monarch at this point. And that labor is just like a stepping stone. What do you think about that? Yeah. It's 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 funny because I think it depends on the union how smart a bet that is. Like some unions are pretty specific in that they only really want rank and file people to become the you know elected officers. Lafonza Butler kind of took a different route, and SCAU in a lot of locals is like kind of more open to that. It has seemed to me. I don't know. Maybe I'm over speaking, but um, so. Yeah, I think like there are in certain situations a way for people to sort of like spot that that is that going through a union bureaucratic route is going to be a good way to amass power. The u- unions remain the biggest force, organized force on the left and in the Democratic Party. So it's kind of logical, you know, um, I think like the the democratic dream of a union is is le- like obviously not that, but you can imagine a situation in which like I don't know, a restaurant worker or a home health aide who rises through like sort of incidentally enters politics like that is would be like much more organic and like, (laughs) like what a leftist would want. But no, of course, people like are going to take advantage of those structures. And it makes sense. And it's not necessarily bad. Like if you are going to enter electoral politics from somewhere, it's probably better that you at least had a little bit of cutting of your teeth doing something in the community. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, When you said at the top, that you, you sort of like, were like, oh, I thought we could do kind of like better than this sort of traditional route. Like, what were you thinking? Oh, well, I was thinking about mostly just Barbara Lee, for example. Right. But I don't know. I I think that, uh, I think that there is a way in which every, I'll just put it this way. I think there's a way in which every black candidate specifically becomes a point of conversation for and is accused of cynicism in a way that is starting to bother me a bit, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And 
I know that I'm not going to name any of the authors, but there is a lot of writing about LaFonza Butler and, um, you know, how her identity didn't matter and how there, because people- Like in the appointment or? No, no. Like how it shouldn't stand in for good politics, right? Oh, oh, oh. And we're over the point where we think that because she's a black queer woman that she must have great politics and that we have to support her, right? Like, um, and that we don't need to do that anymore. And that, uh, and that identity politics, look, I'm a very big critic of identity politics, but I also really don't like when people are being racist. And I think that like, there is this thing (laughs) where, uh, we've almost on the left, at least, at least left intellectual spaces, we've really sort of overcorrected to a certain extent. And this is something I've really thought for a little while now, which is like, I don't think that any person who is appointed, who has an identity that makes them perhaps more appealing to a type of broader liberal consensus should be held immediately under suspicion when that identity is mentioned by somebody who is not them, right? Mm -hmm. And so should Gavin Newsom say, I would like to appoint a black woman to succeed Dianne Feinstein, right? Um, Maybe not, right? Yeah, Uh, I think that's right. And I I think I might have said this on a previous podcast, but I think Newsom and Biden, when they say, I'm going to appoint a black woman to this spot, like doesn't do anyone any favors because it just opens up people to all of this. And they didn't ask for it, you know? And again, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to have this diverse representation, like that's all good, blah, blah, blah. But that setting up that exact person, that exact slot to that critique of sort of this like cronyistic appointment is like, just feel really unhelpful. But anyway, yeah, I mean, I think we should be judging LaFonza Butler on like, yeah, was the Airbnb Uber thing a sort of blip that we can get over and she's going to be fine? Um, I mean, also, even though she's very prominent right now, I think like, it's not at all clear that she would win over Schiff and Porter. Oh no, you know, she's, right? I mean, like, it's well, no one knows like, who she. No, no, no one I know. knows. Who she, she has is. no like elected. I mean, she was in elected office as a union officer, but like, she has no political experience of this kind. So it's just you know, I she think she has it, no constituency is also important, right? Like, right. There's there's nobody yeah. who voted for her. I mean, like I, I've always said this, which is here in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, right? Uh, Barbara Lee generally runs unopposed, right? And that there are many people who will just vote for Barbara Lee because they know who she is and because they are happy or they like her and they don't blame her for the problems of the East Bay, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because, you know, it would be kind of ridiculous too. And so, yeah, I don't think she has much of a chance because Schiff I and know. Porter, I mean, Porter is very famous, right? Despite having not been a politician for too long. And uh, she's famous on a national scale as well, right? Katie Porter is because of her whiteboard stuff and because, you know, she's good at grilling people during congressional hearings, which <laughs> makes for good, it makes for good TV. Good TV, yeah. Um, and Schiff, of course, has been around forever and is going to be the establishment's pick for everything. And so mm-hmm. um, I don't know, but I, my point just being that LaFonza Butler, I think, has to run to their left. Right. Mm-hmm. Like she can't run to their right. Like, like right. that would be right, extremely right. weird given her past yeah. And, yeah. and like all the organization that she's beholden to that she's going to have to go back to if she doesn't win the Senate seat. Right. Like, yeah. like you can't you can't run to their right. And so I think she's going to probably in the end be the most pro labor sounding person out there, which, you know, I think does in some ways, even if it is totally because of a political calculation, like at some level, who cares? Right. Like she is <laughs> like, like she's still going to be the most pro labor candidate out there because and she's going to draw on the SEIU stuff and she's going to yeah, explain that. away the Uber stuff. And 
Um, she's going to say, this is who I was. Why did I go into this work when I had so many options laid out for me? Why did I go work in these in, in SEIU? And that's a real question, right? Like she probably could have gone and worked at a law firm or something like that. And she didn't, right? So uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I just don't know what she's going to do to be more pro-labor than Schiff and Port. Like, you know, yeah, like yeah. in, well, in California, true. these lines are so fine because everybody is like pretty good. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think it'll I think it'll be interesting. I do. I do feel like um, the identity politics thing is definitely something that we're going to have to watch, because if they can't distinguish themselves on those bases, then is she going to go deep on that? Yeah, um, I don't know. You know, California does not have a very large black population. But it does have a lot of people who would rather. I mean, it's like what we talked. To, I, did we talk about this with London Breed and the Levi's Air, where it's like, yeah, yeah. at some level, I'm just if they're exactly the, the same, I am <laughs> yeah. actually going to vote on identity For politics. Sure, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. So and and it's like you know, Schiff is old and all this stuff. It's like yeah, just like oh well, she seems fine, you know, and she has these extra two qualities that seem nice. <laughs> I feel like uh, you know, like when uh, the Fisher decision came out, or actually when Gruder came out, or whatever. Right? One of these decisions came out mm-hmm. the affirmative action, and the idea was that like race could be used in the term as like as a tiebreaker, kind of, like, or, or as like a narrowly considered way to swing and to swing and that's how I feel about the about the identity politics thing in my own electoral thinking, which is mm-hmm. that like, hey, if it's close, I'm going to use it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to vote for London Breed if, if, if she's the only person she's running against is going to be this Levi's guy. And they're just constantly scurrying to figure out who can be more right, you know, and in the end it all washes out, then yeah, you know. But um, I don't think that in California that that's a particularly effective strategy because I don't think that there is like enough black voters in the state for that to really carry too much weight. But I don't know. I think that she has an interesting perspective in that, like, she can't quite say that she's an outsider, right? She can't pull the Trump or Vivek or like Andrew Yang thing. I mean, she is arguably more of a definition of an insider. Right. And maybe even more of an insider than like Katie, like, I don't know if you guys say who's more of an insider. I'd be like, I don't know, Katie, like, it's kind of tied to me. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I don't know. I I think it's going to, in the end, I think what it'll end up being is an extremely boring race that Adam Schiff is going to win. That's kind of, oh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) God, yeah, nothing ever changes. That's like the theme of of this episode is like... nothing nothing matters oh yeah i don't know i don't i i don't know why but i just what what do you think about do you think we've sort of overcorrected about some of this identity politics stuff i'm not talking about the country at large because i think the country at large is still interested in identity yeah i was gonna say but um like in our tiny corner of things yeah on the maybe a little in the intellectual left i would say yeah i mean maybe a little um yeah i i definitely do feel like I'm often having two different conversations. Like the conversation I'm having with friends is entirely unrepresentative of what is actually happening in the real world. And I mean, it sort of connects to what we were talking to Samita about, about like this girl boss rhetoric, because right. the identity politics is reaches beyond just like the black queer woman thing. And is also about, you know, how she came up and a certain milieu from which she emerged to become the incredible girl boss that she is today. So it's, um, yeah, I think even if 
this sort of, uh, it's not just like she is a black candidate and so black Californians will vote for her, but more just like, what do Californians kind of like see as the future that they want, you know? Right, right. And that is tied up in identity because as you said, they're all going to have basically, like there's not going to be that much. Their policy differences are pretty slim and there's only so much you can do as a senator. And here in California, the, like all the questions they get and the way that they're going to talk about it, it's all going to be focused on things that they have very little control over, which is yeah. crime and homelessness, you know? And so yeah. uh, a United States senator, like they're not running, for, not there, they're not but... running for governor, right? right. So it's exactly. a little bit different. Exactly. And uh, so it's going to yeah. be interesting to see how the identity parts of it play out. Like I think that Katie Porter being from Irvine is going to be kind of interesting too, right? Where it's not really the seat of any of this, but then LaFonza Butler doesn't even live in California. Where's her seat? She doesn't yeah, even she doesn't have even one. Live in <laughs> I don't oh know. Oh my God. Yeah, it's uh, all lining up for a shift victory is all, is all yeah. I'm saying. And honestly, like Adam Schiff, say what you will, but he's better than a lot of Democrats in terms of labor stuff, right? Like, so um, it's, it's uh, yeah. I it's don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to really invest too much it's true. I, I don't know. Care that into that. So I'm much, much more interested in governors and stuff like that within the state and even yeah. local elected Mayors politicians and, here. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, We had this whole controversy oh, here in Berkeley about the chess club. And I've, I think that I've basically become an angry local citizen in a lot of ways. And I find it really satisfying. You know, like, I thought that was who you were already. I'm just like, I'm so interested. You're leaning in. All my, all my interests in politics right now are so micro local. Yeah, actually, it started before. At some point, I realized when I was at the Times and I was writing my newsletter and there was like literally, I would not say zero, but there was very little restriction on what I could write about, right? Which I thank them for sincerely. Like, it was really cool that they let me do that. But I wrote this thing about like land use or uh, sidewalk use on Telegraph Avenue and how like they should change two blocks of it to become pedestrian only. And I was like, this is crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm writing for a national outlet, basically. I try and clothe it as being like, oh, you know, but these are the repercussions nationally. But really, I only care about making those. I want those two blocks to be pedestrian only. Oh, I see. It's all come. It's all much clearer now to me. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm really invested in this chess club thing, where uh, I feel like it's an interesting referendum on like the union and all this sort of stuff. Um, I think we're done, right? Yeah. Okay. We'll have more to say, but appreciate the listeners for bearing with us while we just process our feelings. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a real week. Um, yeah. Okay, well, thanks for listening to the show. As always, you can support us for $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com or patreon.com slash ttsgpod. We had a meetup here in San Francisco this oh, yeah. week. It's the type of thing we usually do with people from the Discord server. It was very nice. Um, so thank you for everyone who came there. I, in the middle of it, I realized that I had drank so much coffee that day that I had like this incredible... I don't know how to describe it, but like sweating fit or something, which was like odd. I didn't tell anyone at the time, but it was, it was weird. I I felt like I was going to, I was like, oh my God, am I having a heart attack or something? Oh my God. But it was just because I had drank like something like seven cups of coffee that day. I wonder if, what? That's so, that's so many. I know. I don't know why. It was because I had like 
a ton of coffee in the morning and then I had to do an interview and the guy wanted to meet at Phil's Coffee, which is like this very famously strong coffee place. Oh and I wasn't God. really thinking about refills? it. So I got a gigantic cold brew from there. And then Oof. I was like, <laughs> anyway, it was great. We met a lot of people, had some very fun conversations Aww. about communal living, etc. So thanks for everyone to coming to out yeah, to that. That's so cool. And uh yeah, until next week. Uh, next week, we're going to have on somebody. We're going to try and have a much uh, substantive conversation about what's happening in Gaza and uh, Israel. And we can. Um, and yeah, so please look out for that. And we'll talk to you then. Bye.